Church, good morning. Or is it afternoon? You second service people. I don't know about you. I'm hungry by now. Good to be with you guys uh, this morning. Uh, it is a great pleasure for me to have the chance to open God's word with my church family and teach you this morning. Before we dive in to our passage uh, this morning, let's ask the Lord's blessing together. Father, how good it is to gather together under your name and under the, under the authority of your word. Father, would you bless us now as we dive into your word together? Would you do, Lord, what only you can do? That is, open our spiritual hearts and ears, teach us, mold us, that we may follow you and love you and trust you more deeply. We ask all these things and many more in your name. Amen. Church, I wonder if you have ever had the experience of your word feeling completely powerless. As if they have no authority at all. Some of you probably like me had that experience this week as we were watching the news or flipping through Twitter, hoping that this war in Ukraine would somehow be averted. But no matter how much we screamed at the TV or in our hearts, our word wasn't going to change that. I have uh, this experience a little bit more frequently, almost on a daily basis where my word feels powerless. Why is that, you ask? I have a two-year-old at home. And with a two-year-old at home and a four-year-old and a five-month-old, any rational argu argument you make with them still feels absolutely powerless. Okay, Malachi, our, our two-year-old, uh, a couple times now, has taken a chair, gone to the counter, and just reached for, of course, the biggest knife in the knife block. And no matter how much you tell him, Malachi, put it down, don't touch that, that's bad for you, does he listen to us? No, because our words don't have power or authority with a two-year-old. The same thing, right, with uh, him being on uh, a height that if he jumps off is going to hurt him. Malachi, get down from there. It's going to hurt you. Does he listen to me? No, because he has no power and authority. After first service, I walk downstairs, and of course, he's standing on top of one of those, like, really tall chairs. Thanks for proving my point, Malachi. Our words just don't feel like we have power or authority. And I think you guys probably have these experiences your own life. Maybe not with a two-year-old, but maybe in your work or with your family or in your relationships. And so that's why I am so happy that we have a passage like ours this morning. Luke chapter 4, verses 31 through 37, that reveal all authority and power, not in our words, but in the very word of our Lord Jesus. We're going to see that in three points this morning, spending most of our time on the first two points and then wrapping it up with the third. The first point in verses 31 through 32 will be hints of a powerful word. Hints of a powerful word. Point two, verses 33 through 36, proof of a powerful word. Proof of a powerful word. And in verse 37, news of his powerful word spreads. And by the end of our time together this morning, church, I hope that as we dwell on the authority and power of Jesus, that we learn to trust, love, and follow Jesus 
more closely because he has all power and authority. So let's catch up with where we are in Luke's gospel so far. We've been in it for a while now and we'll be in it for the next little while. But we have covered the birth of Jesus. Okay, we covered that. We have this so-called teenager Jesus that we talked about. John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus' ministry. We have the devil tempting Jesus. And last week, Jesus started his earthly ministry. And our text this morning is going to be the first of 21 healing miracles in the book of Luke. And what Luke is going to do through those 21 healing miracles is he is going to confirm to us, the readers, exactly who Jesus is. He is going to prove to us that Jesus is this promised Messiah. How do we know he's going to do that? Well, we'll look back to last week, what Tommy preached on last week, and specifically verses uh, 18 and 19 in chapter 4. It's worth rereading those again. This is Jesus opening the scriptures and reading from them. Starting in verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So that's exactly how Jesus is going to prove or Luke is going to prove to us who Jesus is, is Jesus is going to proclaim And by his word, these things are going to happen. So now Luke is going to flush that out for us this morning, church. And as we enter into our passage this morning, that's exactly what we find Jesus doing. He's proclaiming. He's preaching. Okay, so let's read verses 31 and 32 together as we start our passage. And he went down to Capernaum, the city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And, there, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. Okay, so this is now the second time that we have found Jesus in the synagogue on the Sabbath preaching. And in verse 32, we see the response to his teaching. The religious people in the synagogue Uh, What was their response? It says, and they were astonished by his teaching. The people in the synagogue, the Jews of the day, were astonished by his teaching. Do you know how hard it would have been to astonish these people? The religious Jews of the day would have been well-read in Jewish scriptures. They would have known it all. They would have seen it all. In fact, many of them in their early childhood would have memorized the first five books of our Bible. They would have been well-read and well-studied. And yet, they were astonished. Another word for that that can be translated, overwhelmed. These people in the synagogue who knew it all and seen it all and heard it all were overwhelmed as Jesus was teaching. Absolutely astonished. I wonder if any of us remember the story of Susan Boyle. Susan Boyle was a contestant on Britain's Got Talent in 2009. She was a singer. 
And so uh, as she is preparing for her audition in front of the judges and in front of the crowd, she starts to walk out onto a stage similar to this, and you get some scoffs, you get some laughs, you get some eye rolls. Susan is a very unassuming middle-aged woman. What's she doing in front of the big crowd? What's she doing in front of the judges? And so one of the judges, Simon Cowell, Cowell poses to her a question. Susan, what's the dream? What are you doing here? She looks pretty out of place. And she says, my dream is to be a professional singer. And that really gets the crowd laughing. That really gets some eye rolls. The judges thought they knew it all and thought they had seen it all. The crowd was judging a book by its cover. And yet, Susan starts to sing. And if you know this story, it was beautiful. Go on YouTube, look at the audition. It's beautiful. They were stunned. They were shocked. There was silence in that room. Their eyes kind of got big and mouth dropped. They're looking at each other. What's going on here? I can't help but think that would have been similar to the reaction in the synagogue. What is going on here? So it is a good question to ask ourselves, what is it that astonished them in the synagogue? Is it like Susan, where her performance was so great and grand that they were absolutely shocked? Actually, the text doesn't mention anything about how Jesus presented his preaching. It doesn't say with great eloquence or great uh, persuasion they were astonished. No, what does verse 32 say? And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. They were astonished because Jesus' word possessed authority. It was typical of the day for rabbis or teachers to gain their authority by creating an echo chamber of sorts. What they would do is one rabbi would quote a little bit more illustrious rabbi who would quote a little bit more illustrious rabbi who would quote a little bit more illustrious rabbi and they would gain their authority that way and the circle would go around and around and around. Again, these people would have heard it all and seen it all just quoted another rabbi who's maybe a little bit more important than the last. But Jesus, Jesus is different than the other rabbis. Jesus' authority does not come from quoting anyone else. Jesus' authority comes because Jesus is the ultimate authority. The people in Capernaum are being astonished, overwhelmed by God himself. Jesus' word as the proof. They are being astonished by God himself, Jesus' word as the proof. Brothers and sisters, this is, this is good news for you and me. How's that good news, Josh, for the first century Jews here in Jesus? It's good news because the authority and power that was in his word in that synagogue in the first century, we have as well. We have the authority and it still possesses power in our lives. Jesus' word still possesses authority in our lives. That's really, really good news. 
Jesus' word possesses authority over our life, our family, our work, our church. We are not left to our own devices to kind of wander to and fro. What does God want from me? How do I follow Jesus? No, we have his word. And it's authoritative in our lives. His word speaks no less authoritatively to us than it did to the people in the synagogue. And they were astonished. I think if we dwelt on that a little bit more frequently, maybe made it a habit every day to dwell on the fact that the God of the universe gave us his very word and authority for all matters of life and faith, that that might bring us also to astonishment. That we might be overwhelmed with gratitude and thanksgiving to a God who did not leave us on his own, but sent us his word through his son, Jesus. We have everything we need to live and follow and love Jesus given to us. That's a good gift of grace, church. Let's not, let's not miss that this morning. All right, that brings us to our second point this morning, proof of his powerful word, proof of his powerful word. Have you ever heard something and your immediate reaction is, yeah, right. There is no way. I don't believe it. Don't trust you. There is absolutely no way that happened. Sure, that's happened to all of us at some point in life or another. And I think that's what's happening a little bit here. Luke makes a big claim that Jesus' word possesses authority. And now Luke is going to prove it to us. Luke is going to say, oh, it's true. Want to bet? He is going to prove it to us. In verse 33, Jesus encounters a man with what Luke describes as, uh, let's, read, let's read verse 33 together. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out in a loud voice. So Luke is going to prove it to us that Jesus' word possesses authority, and he's going to prove it by Jesus encountering this man with, an unclean, with a spirit of an unclean demon. Now, that's a really convoluted, confusing kind of language. Why didn't Luke just say this man is possessed with a demon? That, that would make sense. How come, how come Luke didn't say that? Well, it's a good reminder to us, church, that we are not first century Jews reading the scriptures. Luke's readers would not have immediately associated demons or spirits in a negative connotation, right? Like, like we probably do today. They could have been uh, talking about a foreign deity or a foreign idol or maybe a foreign ruler and maybe even in a positive sense. So this would not have been a negative thing outright to, to Luke's readers like it is to us. But Luke clarifies to his first century audience exactly what he's talking about when Luke states that the spirit and the demon are unclean. They would have immediately recognized the uncleanliness as something that could not and would not be used in worship to Yahweh. So they would have recognized what Jesus is now up against. If Jesus' word possesses authority and Luke is going to prove it to us, now they get the idea. This is an evil demon that was there to oppose Jesus. This would have given Luke's readers the context they needed to understand 
what Jesus was up against. And so if it's clear to the first century readers, I think it's also fair that we take a little bit of time to make it clear to us. Demons are not talked about frequently or experienced frequently uh, in our time or culture. Uh, I think demons, we, we start to say that and there's a bit of a taboo even in our theological circles. And while this uh, sermon certainly is not a demonology 101 class, I think it's important, just like the first century readers, that we recognize what Jesus is up against. We recognize the power that Jesus is going to have. So let's spend just a couple minutes to figure out what Jesus is up against here, and in doing so, recognize the power that he has. One commentator puts the truth of demons succinctly when he wrote this. Evil, unclean spirits or demons are ruled by Satan. They worked to tempt people to sin. They were not created by Satan because God is the creator of all. Rather, evil spirits and demons are fallen angels who joined Satan in his rebellion and thus became perverted and evil. Demons and Satan have authority. Even authority to possess, or maybe a better word is to dominate, some people. We see that in our text this morning. That, that's not in dispute. But demons and their power are not unlimited, nor is it ultimate. Demons' power is not unlimited, nor is it ultimate. The demon's objective is to disrupt and oppose, as Jesus said and taught us to pray, my kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That is their objective, is to oppose that kingdom coming and reigning. You might be thinking, oh, come on, Josh. You can't really think that demons still exist. I've never seen one. I've never experienced it. Never seen anyone possessed. I think those went away a long time ago if they even existed at all. And I think maybe that's the prevailing thought in our culture. Maybe even the prevailing thought in our church. Let me share a story with you. In 2013, uh, soon after college graduation, I had the uh, great privilege to serve in, in East Africa. And uh, part of our serving was preparing the way for cross-cultural workers to come live and proclaim in areas that don't have access to, to Jesus. So we were doing that. I was on an island off the east coast of, of Africa, and we were preparing the way for cross-cultural working housing. We were getting their apartments ready and furnished and solar panels and all that stuff, ready for a whole team of cross-cultural workers to move in. And about two weeks into our month on this island, we were walking through the small corridors lined with shops and restaurants into a square, kind of in the middle of this, this island. And as we stepped into the square, me and this, this guy I was with, uh, we are immediately confronted by a man who's, who's dirty, uh, a bit disheveled, and uh, confronted us and said, uh, I know exactly who you are and what you are doing, working for Jesus of Nazareth. In perfect English, which is rare in that part of the world, perfect English. He then turns and walks away. I turn to the guy I was with who grew up in, in Africa, spent decades there, and he said, Josh, if I felt led, I would cast the demon out of that man. I was shocked. Didn't know how 
to react. But dwelling on that experience, I believe that was a demonic possession that was in opposition to our work on that island, to an opposition to the light of Christ coming to a dark place. Okay, Josh, you've, you've convinced me that demons still, ex still exist, but those things don't happen in our culture, in our time, here in the United States. I've heard other missionaries talk about that thing. When Uncle George was here talking about good news for India, he talked about it. Why don't we see or hear much from demons in our time or in our culture? And I think it can be argued effectively that in our time and in our culture, Satan can do his work without them. He can and will deceive us where we are most vulnerable, in the mundane, in the material, in the modern. He has lulled us to sleep, church, in our comfort. Satan uses our modern culture and devices effectively without having to use his demons. But the opposite is true in many places in the world which is why I think you hear cross-cultural workers speak to them so often. Many parts of the world are much more in tune and focused and fixated on the battle going on in the spiritual realm. Satan uses his demons to oppose God's kingdom there. So I hope much like the, the first century readers, we now have an idea of what Jesus is up against. And that helps us because we encounter the demon and Jesus's interaction with him starting in verse 34. Ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. At the beginning of that interaction, the ha could also be translated stop or enough. I don't think what's happening here is sarcasm from the demon or taunting. I don't think this, the demon is saying nana nana boo boo to Jesus. What I think he's actually doing is acknowledging Jesus's divine power. Without Jesus saying a word, the demon cries out, stop, that's enough. Who else has that kind of power except God himself. The demon continues the encounter, still with no word from Jesus. We'll get there. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? This, of course, is a rhetorical question posed by the demon. He has every idea of what Jesus is going to do with him. But I think that the demon is trying to use his limited knowledge of Jesus's name to gain some type of power or, or authority over him. This was common in the ancient Near East. But that didn't come to any avail. He, Jesus still does not acknowledge the demon yet. So demon try, the demon tries one last thing. He says, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This, of course, at the beginning is a, is a rhetorical question. Have you, come to destroy, have you come to destroy us? Of course Jesus has come to destroy them. That's the whole purpose of Jesus coming. 
was to inaugurate his kingdom and his reign on earth as it is in heaven. The demon knows this. It's a rhetorical question. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. I think this is like the last ditch effort. This is the last attempt that the demon has anything. I will reveal his title and see what happens. But it's important for us, church, to recognize that this is not a statement of faith, certainly not a statement of reverence. This is a demon lashing out with his limited knowledge, seeing if anything will work. He's trying to fend off the inevitable. But, as we know, it does not work. The demon's power and knowledge is limited, but Jesus's is not. We see that in the next verse. Verse 35. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. Jesus speaks with divine power and authority, and the opposition is defeated, period. One commentator interpreted this passage and this statement in it to mean that the demon was so thoroughly defeated that he actually handed the man back over to Jesus, having done him no harm. I love that imagery, that he handed him back over to Jesus, having him no harm. Church, this is, must have been quite the scene. In the synagogue of all places, with the religious people, on the holy day. First, they had never heard anyone like Jesus preach. And then they see an exorcism with just a few words. So that leads me to the conclusion that I can't help but to think that verse 36 is actually like the understatement of the last two millenniums. They say, and they were all amazed. Yeah, I bet you they were. They were all amazed, saying, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits. Once again, they're shocked. The very word of Jesus. But by now, don't you think that maybe, just maybe they would start to pick up on who Jesus was? They had his word possessing authority, something they had never seen before. They had Jesus the exorcist, no special formulas or magic tricks to get this demon out. By the power of his word, the evil is defeated. And yet, they're still marveling. They have heard his authority, they have seen his authority, and the best that they can come up with is, what is this word? Really? Come on, guys, it's right in front of you. But I wonder if we recognize, church, how similar we are to the religious crowd in the synagogue. We are an easily deceived and forgetful people. We have the whole word of God on which to follow, 
trust, and love his son, Jesus. Yet more often than I am sure we would like to admit, we exchange the truth of God's word for lies. Or, or is that just me? Lies that somehow, some way tell us that if we disobey, disregard God's authority and power over our lives, if we do those things, it'll make us happier. We will somehow become more fulfilled, in control of our own destiny. No, I think it, I think it does the opposite of that. When we cheat on our taxes to make a few extra bucks, it is a lie straight from the devil that that will be, uh, make us happier or more fulfilled, life easier. No, that is a lie. A lie that when fully grown brings death. When the solution to the problem at work or in our marriage or in our relationship or friendship is just lie our way out of a problem that that will somehow make things easier. No, that is a deception. That is a sin, straight from the evil one. A sin that when fully grown, brings death. When we make family, kids, relationships, schools, cars, vacations, promotions, more important, more ultimate than God, that is a lie, a sin. And when fully grown, brings death. But church, this morning I have good news for you, not of death, but of life. The gospel of our Lord Jesus destroys sin and conquers lies. The gospel says, yes, we are not perfect. We will disregard, we will disobey, we will be lulled to sleep, and yet it was never our work that was going to save us in the first place. It was always and only by the authority and power of Jesus and his resurrection from the dead that we are rescued from deception and saved once and for all from the work of the evil one. Jesus saves us to life abundant. He said on the cross that that work is finished. Brothers and sisters, uh, First Colossians says this perfectly in verses 12 through 14, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sin. Church, let's not miss this like the people in the synagogue seemingly did. Now, if you're not a Jesus follower here this morning, I suspect some of this sounds a little wonky. It probably sounds a bit weird. But friend, the deception of the devil is a reality of which you want no part. I want nothing more for you today than to experience the power and authority of Jesus' words over your sin that you may confess your sin and put your hope and trust and love in our Lord Jesus and be saved to life abundant from the domain of darkness, saved into his glorious light. Man, church, that's good news. 
open to all who would put their faith and trust in Jesus. This brings us to our third point this morning. News of his powerful word spreads. News of his powerful word spreads. Verse 37. And reports about him went into every place in the surrounding region. Church, the people in the synagogue experienced the power of Jesus and they could not keep it to themselves. They experienced the power of Jesus and what they do? They went and told people about it so much so that the report went into the surrounding region. But I hope the irony isn't lost on you, church. I hope the irony is not lost. They didn't fully realize or recognize who Jesus was, the promised Messiah, the one who saves, the one who conquers evil once and for all. They didn't recognize that. And they still went to share. They could not keep it to themselves. So the admonition, the encouragement to us who do know exactly who Jesus is and exactly what he has done is how much more should we go and share the great news of life abundant in Christ Jesus. What he has done in our lives, what he has done in our families, what he has done in our church. Jesus has saved us from the domain of darkness into a glorious life. Church, that's worth sharing. It's worth sharing with friends who don't yet know Jesus, with friends who might push you away, with coworkers who would rather not talk about serious matters. And it's worth it to tell people around the world who have never heard of the great name of our Lord Jesus. Not an evangelist, not a problem. These people heard and told. Church, I hope that this might become second nature to us as Jesus followers. Daily, that we would ponder how we experience God's power and authority in our life. Not to mention that he saved us. And in turn, tell people who don't yet know Jesus. They couldn't keep their mouths shut. The people in the synagogue. Man, I hope that's what our experience is leaving here this morning, this week, that we can't keep our mouths shut about what Jesus has done in our lives. And in doing so, that that message would then go out to the surrounding region.